Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Great Fail listeners, I can't thank you enough for making season one of The Great Fail an award-winning success. I'm humbled and grateful for all the positive responses and for your continued support as we delve into the fate of some of the biggest shocking and interesting company failures. As we gear up for season two, we would love to examine more into what makes great businesses fall and dig deeper into what could have been done to prevent their demise. And so we're going to Clubhouse. Starting in July, following each episode drop, we'll be hosting a discussion on Clubhouse with key executives, former employees, analysts, and thought leaders who are actively solving problems and developing solutions in today's rapidly evolving markets. Stay tuned for updates on that and send me an email at debra@thegreatfail.com to stay connected with our community. I love hearing from you as always and do appreciate your emails even to say hello. So please keep it coming. That's Debra, D-E-B-R-A at thegreatfail.com. With that, we're bringing you an encore from one of our throwback episodes, which happens to be a fan favorite, Brie X. Enjoy the show and see you in two weeks for a brand new episode. Grief never die. Uh, people want to get rich overnight. So that's the Brie X story. Welcome to episode three of The Great Fail, a podcast that examines the greatest success stories and their spectacular fails, what led to the demise of the most prolific people, brands, and companies. I am your host, Deborah Chen, and this week we'll be looking at Brie X Minerals. In March of 1997, a body was found in the jungles of Borneo, Indonesia. Through the heat and decomposition, covered in leeches and maggots, the human remains were so indistinguishable that the only thing that could be used to identify the person was a molar and part of a shoulder. Among the broken bones, its internal organs, heart and liver, were gone, possibly due to animal carnage after laying in the swamp for five days. The police ruled this death as a suicide and cited the man's identity as 41-year-old Michael de Guzman, a chief geologist of Briex Minerals, who had been on his way to meet with executives from a partner company, Freeport, McMoran, Copper and Gold. De Guzman had boarded a chopper five days earlier bound for Busang, but 20 minutes into the ride, witnesses heard a loud thump and saw that the door had opened. De Guzman had disappeared, never to return again. 
what led an executive of a $6 billion gold mine, the biggest gold mine of the 20th century, to leap to his death. Well, that was just the beginning of this extremely bizarre, high-profile story. Welcome to the story of Briex Minerals, discovered in 1993, plunged to its death in 1997. This case study was one of my personal favorites because it represented corporate failure on such a catastrophic scale. It was a tale that involved three key figures, the founder of Briex and two of its chief geologists, and then some of the world's most sophisticated and intelligent bankers, analysts, and investors. Through the twists and turns, you'll come to see that nothing is quite as it seems, and what happens in the end will leave you completely speechless. What's so upsetting and bewildering at the same time is that this is a case where a company actually turned the term fool's gold into a sad reality for about 40,000 investors all over the world. Now, let's dig in. It's 1993. President Bill Clinton was inaugurated that January. A month later, the World Trade Center bombing happened in New York City. On the business front, IBM announced an almost $5 billion loss, the largest single-year corporate loss for a U.S. company during that time. The Cowboys won the Super Bowl, and the iconic actor River Phoenix died from a drug-induced overdose in a Hollywood club. And the premier forum for facilitating economic growth and investment into Asia, APEC, held its first meeting in Seattle. Meanwhile, in Calgary, Canada, David Walsh was sitting on a 30-cent stock called Briex Minerals. Originally founded in 1989 with no real assets, he was running out of cash and places to get it. Walsh was born in Montreal in 1945, and as the son of a stockbroker, he needed to prove to the world that he too had the tenacity and business acumen to prosper in the financial world. And he did. With the same steadfast ambition as his father, he might have even trumped his predecessor because by 29, he was named the youngest person in the firm's history to become vice president of brokerage firm Midland Doherty. But a year later, funny enough, he got entangled in a bad situation where he arranged to help a friend sell stolen stock shares to make some extra cash on the side. After getting caught, he was forced to leave the firm and the position that he had worked so hard at. Call it outwitting the stock market or playing with fire, Walsh tried to put the disgraceful ending behind him as he pursued a few other jobs here and there, nothing really noteworthy until he moved to Calgary in 1982. This is where he first got involved with mining. By then, him and his wife, Jeanette, had been struggling financially for several years. They were heavily in debt and forced to declare personal bankruptcy. Despondent yet still determined, Walsh turned to his acquaintance, Canadian geologist John Felderhoff. Felderhoff was born in Holland, grew up in Nova Scotia, and had already made a name for himself when he was credited for discovering a massive gold and copper mine in Papua New Guinea. You can say that Felderhoff was the mastermind in bringing together this unholy trinity when he introduced Walsh to his good friend, Filipino mining prospector Michael de Guzman. Many would say that de Guzman was the most interesting character of them all. I took an excerpt from an article written about him in the Canadian Encyclopedia. 
chubby little Michael de Guzman was quite the womanizing polygamist who loved the spotlight. Associates described him as a gregarious companion who liked to party hard and sing karaoke. He had a wife and six children in the Philippines, but his career demanded constant travel to distinct mining outposts, giving him plenty of opportunity to indulge in his affection for the opposite sex. Over the years, he married three other women around Asia and somehow managed to keep them a secret from each other. Oh, he was definitely a character. And so the story begins with these three, the businessman Walsh, his sidekick Felderhoff, and chief geologist de Guzman, as they began scouting for their gold mine. And within months, they found a lead. Felderhoff came back and convinced Walsh to purchase an $80,000 plot of land by the Busang River in Indonesia, when he had found extremely compelling evidence that it was sitting on a large gold mine. This was based on core samples that were discovered by de Guzman, who was becoming more and more optimistic about striking gold. Walsh went to discuss this with his wife, Jeanette, who had been struggling to live below the poverty line. If they can just wrangle enough to take one final risk, they might be able to change their fate, she thought. And so she agreed, and together they went back to give Felderhoff the thumbs up. By the land, Walsh instructed. And what do you know? A year later, 1994, the report came back and confirmed that the samples produced from the property were indeed riddled with gold specks. Walsh and his team had struck gold. A lot of it. At that time, de Guzman and his team announced that their initial core samples presented an estimate of approximately 2 million ounces, or 136 pounds of gold, the largest gold deposits ever to be discovered in history. By 1995, everyone in the investment world caught winds of Briex Minerals. It was touted by media and big banks as having the richest gold deposit ever. The world's largest mining companies were clamoring to get a piece of the action. Lehman Brothers recommended the company as a strong buy, calling it the gold discovery of the century. Large funds piled into the stock like it was going out of fashion. One stockbroker who was Canada's top gold analyst at the time was quoted as saying, What most people are now realizing is that Briex has made one of the greatest gold discoveries of our generation. Within just two years, the stock soared from 30 cents to $170, creating an explosive generation of new money and a lot of new millionaires. However, no amount of applause nor the ringing of the stock exchange could deafen the sound of skeptics. There were reports from mineralogists that the gold particles in Bustang had a slightly darker yellow skin compared to the interior, and it was rounder, indicating that it was alluvial gold. This was inconsistent with the drill core origin of the samples. In layman's terms, this implied that the gold flakes extracted in the sample looked like it was panned from a river instead of the type of gold extracted from bedrock, which is what Briex was drilling. There is an explanation for all of this, said de Guzman, who had previously developed a groundbreaking notion called volcanic pool theory. You see here, this is when a volcano collapses back onto itself and gold is created from the massive buildup of heat and pressure. De Guzman made his argument that volcanic pressures caused the rounded corners of the gold found in the core samples to look different. 
And when pushed further, Felderhoff stepped into his defense and argued that de Guzman simply did not have time to educate everyone on these various grade determinations of gold. Because Busang was located just close enough to volcanoes, the theory seemed to assuage those who originally raised doubts. The stock continued to soar. By early 1996, during an annual shareholder meeting, the company announced that Busang, which reportedly sat on at least 30 million ounces of gold, now sat on 30 million plus plus plus, hinting at 100 million ounces. The stock soared to $187. But as Briex continued to excavate, Little did anyone expect that it would soon be digging a hole for itself. The success of Briex was drawing attention, a little too much, to think a penny stock, particularly 30 cents, would climb to more than 250 on the open market was like an unwanted maiden turning into Cinderella. And Briex executives, well, they were the fairy godmother of Wall Street, making a lot of people around the world super wealthy. Soon, word made its way into the government of Indonesia, particularly the Suharto regime, Indonesia's military leader. President Suharto halted exploration of the site until a deal could be struck that involved him getting a piece of the action. And after much negotiating, a deal was worked out where the control of the mine would be split three ways. Between Briex, Suharto's people, and one of the world's largest excavation companies, Freeport McMoran Copper and Gold, who would help run the mine at a higher capacity. The deal was finalized in early 1997, and part of this new agreement was that Freeport would now have to do its own due diligence and act as an independent third party to verify the gold that Briex had been reporting. Now here is where the crack started to show. Out of nowhere, a mysterious fire destroys Briex's administration office and geology records in Busang. This fire unfortunately wiped out many of the samples that de Guzman had worked so hard to produce and now would delay some of the reporting between Briex and its new partner arrangements. Regardless, Freeport proceeded with their own drilling. They took samples just over a meter from where Briex had drilled. Only this time, they came back and reported only minor amounts of gold. Briex fought the claim standing firm on their report, demanding a second opinion from another third party. In the meantime, they sent DeGuzman to meet with Freeport executives as he surely had a logical explanation that would help account for the massive discrepancies between their findings. But he would never reach that meeting because midway en route, he would leap from the helicopter and leave behind a trail of unanswered questions. A few days afterwards, de Guzman's reputation, along with that of Briex, took a nosedive. It was revealed that de Guzman had helped carry out the largest, most significant mining fraud in modern history. It was alleged that he had been salting his samples all along. This episode is brought to you by Ping Identity. 
At a time of extraordinary digitization, identity security is becoming more critical. If you're not an identity expert, that's okay, because we have Ping Identity, a leader and champion of enterprise identity security. And now Ping Identity is bringing you Hello User, an educational podcast that covers all things identity security. The show is hosted by Richard Bird, Chief Customer Information Officer at Ping Identity, and he is one of the most respected voices in the identity space. In each episode, Richard will welcome an expert to discuss why identity touches every virtual part of our lives and why we need to be informed. Topics like how identity theft victims can be made whole again, something that millions of people have to have grappled with, or how the rise in digital affects identity security. There are lessons, there are tools, and you could be armed with knowledge in protecting you and your loved ones. Check it out and listen to pingidentity.com forward slash podcast. To explain what salting is, just imagine what you do to your nice juicy steak when it needs just a little bit more flavor. De Guzman had essentially been adding seasoning, in this case, gold dust, to his core samples from the very beginning. First with shavings from his gold wedding ring, and then as the lie grew bigger and bigger, the elaborate scheme required him to go deeper, leading him to purchase $61,000 worth of locally panned gold to be crushed up and in a systematic fashion, de Guzman would then play Indonesian Tinkerbell over his soil samples. A few weeks later, the other independent third-party assessor, Strathcona Mineral Services, confirmed that the operation was actually the scam of the century. What was the biggest gold mine in the seductive jungles of Borneo? The investment of the century. The $6 billion company that made dreams come true for so many people turned into a complete nightmare and utter fail. Here is Alfred Lenarziak, our postmortem expert, author of the book, Briex, Dead Man's Story, speaking about the death of Briex. We were first guys who knew about it. We were the first gold there. We had some assays there. We didn't find any gold. But generally speaking, there was a lot of people who, who, who were skeptical. So your company already had property there near Briex, but you guys found nothing. Um, there were people doubting this finding from the very beginning. So how did so many people get suckered into the deal? You have to understand that was golden cow for stock exchange, for the brokers, for everything. You had also the, the world-class Analysts, you know, don't forget uh, Goldman Sachs and, and J.P. Morgan they were advisors of Briggs. Uh, Lehman Brothers, they, they, they issued the, the, the most fantastic uh, I ever read report, uh, which they say that this is, this is not only geological dream, but metallurgical dream. That, was, that will be a cheapest gold buy ever. You know, they were estimating uh, $80 ounce on production. That was so fantastic. So when you're reading that, and those leaders in industry uh, wrote that and, uh, and promote that, so how are you going to fight with that? You can't. You just you know, stick to it and enjoy the ride. So the bubble was not, was not easy to burst. That was, was driven by, by greed. You mentioned these world-class analysts that were involved. Their reputations were on the line. How did they not uncover this? If you are analysts, let's say, in, in BMO or, or Lehman or, or Goldman, uh, 
they would not let you go there if you start to have some some doubts. Listen, boy, you know what? We're making from that hundreds of millions. You know, we pay you salaries, so you should have. You do what the boss tells you. And that's how we build up the bricks. The bricks was built not by one guy. One guy just supplied the gold to the rocks. But everybody else supplied the frenzy. In 1997, in the final days of Briax, the company's stock price went from its peak of $280 to an ultimate crash of epic proportions. A CNN Money article dated April 1st, 1997 reported that so many shares traded hands that Briax actually crashed the Toronto Stock Exchange. About 7.8 million Briax shares changed hands in just 22 minutes, bringing the stock price down to below $3. And then Briax delisted from the stock exchange, declared bankruptcy and left behind a trail of victims. There are many things unsettling about the story. Perhaps it's the fact that no one was ever indicted or held responsible for the $6 billion loss of shareholder dollars. Or that the men behind it all, David Walsh and John Felderhoff, claimed that they had no part in this and they were victims themselves to this highly complicated, intricate web of lies concocted by DeGuzman. These two victims who sold their stock and cashed out months before the scam. Well, it was later revealed that David made $35 million and John $84 million. Walsh would later die from a brain aneurysm at the age of 52 and would carry whatever he knew about Briex to his grave. Felderhoff, on the other hand, was charged with eight counts of insider trading and making false testimonies. He was later acquitted of all charges, and he is still alive today, living in the Caymans. And Guzman, well, despite what was reported on him, remains a mystery to this day. It was rumored that only days before he decided to end his life, he was jovial, in good spirits. He joked with his mates and scheduled a medical checkup to monitor his health. He wrote a memo to Felderhoff about an upcoming meeting they had with Indonesia's Ministry of Mines. That night before the infamous flight, he went out boozing with his co-workers at a nearby karaoke bar, one of his favorite pastimes, and belted out Frank Sinatra's My Way before he retreated back to his room. It was also rumored that the day he left, he was carrying $300,000 in cash, all of which was never retrieved. It also mysteriously took four days to recover his body, one that was so decomposed that none of his family members could identify what was left or confirm his dental records, leaving behind many in doubt with speculative theories. Was this a tragic ending to a very elaborate scam? And how involved or not were the other two members? And if DeGuzman could manage to fool the world for so long, what prevented him from devising his own exodus in a similar vein? Alfred, one of the most astonishing facts about the fall of Briex was this lack of accountability. No one went to jail for this. So why do you think that is? Nobody was sentenced because the main witness, Michael DeGuzman, is dead. Dead witness has no value for judge. They put everything on him. So everybody was sheltered by this guy. You know, this is perfect wild, uh, white collar crime. Greed never die, and people want to get rich overnight. And that's that's the story. So that's the big story. You've done so much extensive research. 
At this point, what are your thoughts on what happened to the Guzman? Do you think he's dead or could he be? Oh, he's alive. He, he made, uh, according to the report, made 180 million. Um, he made a little bit more than that. Uh, you know, when making, let's say, 200 million, you don't want to go to die in a jungle in Borneo. Uh, you know, you can buy the body in, in, in Indonesia for a few thousand bucks and drop from helicopter. You can buy all of them. I pay all of the officials and, and, and beans. Yeah, Indonesia is one of the most corrupted countries in the world. I'd like to take a moment to cite a legendary line from the movie The Usual Suspects. When Verbal, Kevin Spacey's character, describes the mastermind of Kaiser Solsei, he said, The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. In this case, convincing the world that the Guzman just happened to leap 800 feet from the air from a small helicopter without any warning to those around him and falling into the jungle pit of hungry beasts who would devour him beyond recognition. Or did he? And like that, he was gone. Thanks for listening to The Great Fail, a program that spotlights some of the most infamous case studies and failed businesses, brands, and ideas, and goes beyond that to garner lessons and wisdom so that we can all learn from the greatest mistakes. Join us next time for a brand new episode and be sure to visit thegreatfail.com to access show notes and discover our fantastic bonus content. If you have a question about your business or have an idea or startup and need expert advice, please send your questions to advice at thegreatfail.com and you may be featured on an upcoming episode with our network of expert advisors to help you get the answers you're looking for. And remember, with great failure comes great liability. I must confess, I did what I did, now my life's a mess. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.